Ta. Women's Success China is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SUP China, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McGronald for editing. This week, we are joined by Hannah Ryder, founder and CEO of Development Reimagined, a pioneering international development consultancy and the first Kenyan wholly foreign-owned enterprise in Beijing. Her consultancy provides strategic advice and practical support to Chinese and international organizations on issues from the Belt and Road Initiative to Africa's growth markets, development effectiveness, green growth, and China's foreign aid. She's also a former Kenyan and British diplomat and economist with over 15 years of experience. I found that Hannah had a strong grasp on her areas of expertise that's truly guided by strong convictions that we explore during our time together. Yet she also has a lighthearted nature, a balance that comes through in her outlook. Let's have a listen. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ta for Ta, Women's Success China. We are so excited today to have Hannah Ryder, the CEO of Development Reimagined, on the show with us today. Thank you so much for having me. And so, you know, I think it'd be great if you could help us out by giving almost a highlights reel of your career. I think that will get us to understand a bit more about you and kind of we can jump off from there. Sure. Um, well, let me start from in terms of beginning of career. I'm an economist by training. And so that's how I started off in uh, started off my career uh, just under 20 years ago. Um, I was always interested in international development, uh, particularly for because of being born in Kenya, living there for the first 10 years of my life and going back fairly often. Um, it was always a, there was always a question in my mind how can countries develop and how do they get to different stages of development? And so I wanted always to get into that. And despite being an economist, I was always interested in being practical, trying to be at the forefront of policymaking um, rather than just dealing with spreadsheets, although I actually do love spreadsheets, which makes me a real geek, but um, nevertheless. And that took me into working for UK government. And that's where I started off Uh, working on agriculture initially, uh, and then moved on to environment issues. And I think we'll talk about that a bit later. Uh, And then eventually into the international development part of the UK government, where I was there for four years, uh, which was really exciting and really interesting. And then got the opportunity to go and work in China for the UN, the UN Development Programme. After two years at the UN, I then set up uh, this consultancy that I run now uh, called Development Reimagined. And here we are, three or four years later, <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and going from strength to strength. Uh, but again, we'll get we'll get into that a bit later. Yeah, I mean, let's just go all the way back to the beginning. You got your start, as you said, in agriculture, but that quickly moved to working on negotiating the financing for climate action in developing countries. I really want to know. Within the UK government, was this an opportunity that you sought out? Did it almost befell upon you? How did this, what seems like a pivotal early career opportunity, come about? The pivotal part was a little bit just before that part of my career, which was working on a report in 2006 called the Stern Review of the Economics of Climate Change. Most people haven't heard of it. Um, But it was, in 2006, a real seminal um, report. 
And for that, I was actually asked to go to work on a team. So that was that was a part where I was kind of in the right place at the right time, actually. Um, mm. And they asked me to go and work on that because I'd been doing some very practical work in the U- in the UK for the UK government about how different types of uh, environment on different types of environment agreements so specifically something called the emissions trading scheme and they they wanted somebody who'd had that practical knowledge to help write three chapters of that report focused on international international support so on how how international agreements can work in the area of climate change now that wasn't the part of that report that was most interesting although i think in many ways it's very important uh, and effectively the stuff that we still struggle with uh, in climate change. But what was really seminal about the report was that it set out for the first time that the costs of action uh, would be lower than the costs of inaction. And that was the first time that that had been brought out in international um, circles. And so Nicholas Stern, uh, Lord Nicholas Stern now, was asked to then go and kind of make the presentation about this report to the negotiations and all the negotiators at the UN. And so he said, come with me, accompany me, help me, you can be my assistant or whatever, but also just speak, you know, get the introduction to all these different people. You'll find it really interesting. And I absolutely did. Um, when went to the negotiations, you know, with him met the president of Australia, president of Indonesia, um, and also got to see the response from so many different countries as to what were the real issues and why, and got an inkling into why some of these weren't being addressed. And interestingly enough, part of that was to do with climate finance, which was the issue that I then started working on. So um, I was then, because of the Stern Review, uh, I was then, I applied to work in the climate change team, having had that experience was brought in as economist, but again, with as I mentioned earlier, I have this feeling to always be as practical um, as possible. And so I quickly found myself and started to try to work on this really tricky issue of climate finance and how uh, developing countries, how developed countries can help developing countries to get the amount of finance that they need to address climate change and help shape the UK position um, on that issue and then take it into the negotiations um, also through the EU as well. I fell into the position previously, but then was a kind of went through that next one as a, as a very sort of uh, intentional, intentional um, planned way, I guess. Uh, what really just stood out to me in the, what you were talking about was of course, we we all know that economics sometimes isn't practical. Have you thought of consciously throughout your career about how to bring a practicality to your field of study? Very much so. I mean, I think part of the challenge, the way I see economics is it is a particular lens of how you look at the world. And it's a really useful lens of looking at the world. But I think it's just as useful, for example, as a geographer or, or a historian. But economics gives me a particular lens that I can see, that I can use to solve and think through policy issues. And I think that that is really important, especially microeconomics. And you know, there's so many economists who've made such a difference to international development, especially more recently through the use of microeconomics. 
But it was first, it was actually an economist, um, Amartya Sen, whose paper I read that really brought economics to life for me when I was at university. Uh, I read his paper on famine. And before then, I'd really not enjoyed microeconomics at all, kind of really focused more on macroeconomics. But it was that paper that that made me think, oh, this this study can actually make a difference in the world. But if you want it to make a difference, you have to constantly apply it to policy and be thinking about through policy and how it can be applied. So it really is kind of part of my ethos of, of working, for sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. And so it seemed that you were at this point negotiating and and working within the UK civil service and then decide to make this leap to a well-known multinational organization, UNDP. I kind of want to know why why you decided to make that jump. Was there something about the the type of work that you were doing that you felt that you'd have more efficacy at a larger multinational? Was there an opportunity that you were seeking? I always find it interesting, this sort of jump between country-level government and a, a more global lens and want to understand you know, what was going through your mind at that time? And, and what was what was the opportunity? Yeah, well, so there were two things that at that point in time, you know, I was what, over 10 years into my career, thinking about, you know, how do I continue to how do I continue to progress? Obviously, worked on really exciting things, you know, help shape UK policy, help, you know, deliver great new outcomes in international negotiations. Um, and then also worked on I'd worked on issues in the in the Department for International Development by then, which were related to like how do you make development more effective? It was it was again a very sort of big picture. How do you make international development really work? But at that point I had not, although I'd lived in Kenya for the first 10 years of my life, I'd not worked in a country at a country level. Um, mm. And so that I was told that this was, you know, some kind of gap that I should seek to fill. Although, of course, having traveled to, what, 50, almost 50 countries by that time. Wow. Um, yeah. And uh, especially because of climate change, it sounds odd, but yes. Um, and and having that background in Kenya, I was still told, look, you, you, you still need to see how country offices operate. At the same time, I was really interested in China. And because where I was traveling and every time that I traveled, I would just see there was this new actor on the block. Uh, people in my sector don't seem to understand this new actor. Also the recipients or, you know, the developing country governments or, uh, and even negotiators that I was working with didn't really understand them or know what was fully know what was going on. And I thought, there is no way that as somebody working in, in a career in development that I do not understand how China is working and operating. So let me see if I can get an opportunity to do that. And so I just, you know, again, put the word out. <laughs> that was what I was interested in. Uh, and uh, and was was directed to apply for this UNDP role. It was a two-year um, two role. It was super, super interesting because at that time, the UNDP was really leading the at the forefront in its engagement with China. So it had, at that point, it had already had this kind of split from not just being an organization that was working on uh, poverty inside China or inside any other country for that matter, but it was also working on look how does China work with the rest of the world. And so that, that role, that two-year role, was I was trying to uh, help shape that second part of the office and scale it up 
and help them devise a kind of strategy for scaling it up and, and see that see the beginnings of that at least. And that was, yeah, it was it was a super exciting opportunity. Um, but as you say, there was a huge difference from working for the UK uh, and having a representing one country to then shifting to a mindset of representing a huge number of countries and, and all UN member states. That was a real, it was a real shift, but I have to admit, I absolutely loved it and really thought that it was, it was such a great opportunity to be able to, to understand that difference and that tone in, uh, in, in what you're, what you're focusing on, what you're looking at. I have to ask, do you have any examples of navigating that difference? Was there a moment where you realized, oh, okay, this is different? <laughs> oh, um, I don't have any specific examples, I wouldn't say, but I mean, it was it was really immediate to me. And in a sense, because what you're trying to do in the UN is build capacity of different countries to be able to engage with each other and uh, to be able to you know, do the right thing. And from that perspective, you know, you don't you you can you can put yourself in the you, you generally actually you have to put yourself in the shoes of the smallest, tiniest country out there. <laughs> fundamentally right I mean because those are the largest numbers of voices in the UN you need to think what do we need from the UN what was really interesting at UNDP was also that because the UN is and UN is really trusted in China it actually has a very interesting role in China compared to uh, many other countries you know again if you go to South Africa or if you go to uh, even in Kenya UN is kind of it's there but it's not not always hugely trusted or there's only certain certain parts of society that really trust it Chinese government really trusts the UN so Mm. we had a lot of access uh, as UNDP to different uh, ministries different government officials to really understand from their perspective as well what they were trying to how they were trying to engage with the rest of the world and what they were trying to um, and where they where they felt challenges and that was where you know as a UN, we were then saying, this is how we can help you to engage with the rest of the world, but this is what the rest of the world needs from you too. So that was a really interesting role. And there's no way that, for example, the UK uh, would, a UK representative would easily be uh, in that in that discussion. Um, it would be a completely different type of discussion. And so you all eventually branch off and start what you've currently built and are working on right now with Development Reimagined. You also took a established route Prior to branching off, and one thing that I've been thinking about, you know, is taking that established route something that really laid the foundation for you? Do you recommend that to maybe someone that is exploring opportunities in the development economic space? Or do you feel that that's one route of many? Maybe that's a bit of a leading question. But, you know, what about that foundational experience, that established path really helped you for branching off and doing your own thing I mean I think it's it's really interesting that you say that it's uh that it's an established path because I really feel like it isn't <laughs> in some mm. ways um, feel free to push back on that I'm curious <laughs> I'd be curious your take it's I just see it as large recognizable names yeah. even though it seems that you kind of weaved your way throughout and, and did your own thing um, so yeah, I feel free That's to push true. back on that. No, I guess, I guess the reason I'm, I, I wonder about that is because, so, so many of my colleagues, whether it's in for my, my, 
previous colleagues, whether it's in DFID or in uh, in UNDP, many mm-hmm. of them had, if they'd been working before, they had typically come from the NGO sector, um, or they had started in those development organisations quite early on and quite quick mm-hmm. and and kind of moved through those development organisations, or like, or rather in the UN or in DFID. And so me coming in, for example, into DFID or seeing myself as a development practitioner that's not inside a development agency, that was actually fairly unusual and I still think is quite unusual um, because a lot of the time there's this idea that unless you're working on aid, then you're not working on development and that aid is really, you know, the key answer to, to development. And that's starting to shift. You know, we have many more people who are working on trade, who are working on climate change and are working on uh, even even aspects of foreign policy, of course, who see this is actually what we're doing is fundamental development and we can have a development mindset through what we work. But uh, I eventually got to the development organizations, right? I didn't start there. And I think that's what that's what I mean is, is why I think I am a, a, <laughs> to some degree a bit unusual. Um, but yeah, I've been it's been a great honor in many ways to be to be part of those large organizations and to really and to get such a great window into them and how they work. I think now, you know, in my own uh, consultancy, you know, we, we bring in different experts who have got so many different backgrounds. We also bring in interns who have, you know, interned literally all over and have and have such a wide range of experience. I think the development sector is getting more and more open to those possibilities and the importance of that. And I think that's particularly recognized in the in the wake of the UN sustainable development goals because they are so much wider than what the millennium development goals used to be so you know since 2015 i think that shift is moving more and more so i wouldn't say that being a development practitioner means that you have to have worked in you know a DFID or a, or a UN, or the UN or that you've necessarily had even to work in an NGO. It's just more important to have that development mindset and that development background. So in particular, there's a, I think, and again, this is where, where we also sometimes have a challenge. And I find a challenge in some of our, um, some of our consultants that we bring in, there's a certain amount of development kind of background that they that they might not have if they're coming from other other disciplines, so especially business disciplines. So that's something which we, you know, also kind of have to have to work on making sure they fully they fully grapple with that and also, and also understand the, the history of development. But yeah, these are. So I, I think we've been dancing around the topic. Why don't you tell listeners about the mission of Development Reimagined and also almost like an origin story of. What prompted branching off? Well, so my two-year contract was coming to an end in UNDP, and there were a number of different options. Interestingly enough, I was going on maternity leave, which also gave me a bit of extra time to think, uh, and in some ways, courage, um, which I'll come back to. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but that that time that time to think and you know kind of focus on where do I really want to go and and where that I realized. I'd had a fantastic time at UNDP. I had a fantastic time in DFID and, and, and UK Gov in general. But I also had found that the there were two challenges in particular that that I really faced in in both of those organisations. And I think the private sector is is a great way to kind of shift out of those. One was a kind of 
in a sense, a slow pace. Um, so whenever, you know, any large bureaucracy is going to have a slow pace. It's just, it's just part of bureaucracy, of course. I think mm-hmm. the pace was, was certainly faster and differed, but nevertheless, it was, it was definitely still there. Uh, and a real kind of frustration, you know, patience is important, of course, but, you know, poverty is, has been around for too long, right? We actually need to get to solutions today, not, not tomorrow. Um, so that was something which I felt very strongly about. And the other, the other challenge was financing. And uh, especially in China, uh, there was a, and, and especially in the UN, there's this huge, huge challenge for the UN in that how do you orient yourselves to do the right thing and do the best type of activity that you can when you're so dependent on funds coming in? And especially in UNDP China, because, and I think China generally for the UN, uh, there's a huge constraint on UN organizations because they're being told, well, why should we be, why should donors be putting money into the UN in China? Like, why? China's got enough money, China can pay. So there's this kind of a bind that these, that the UN's in, uh, which also then means it might not be doing the best things that it should be. And so that also frustrated frustrated me or, or is just constrained in being able to get those things done. So I'd come across a lot of consultants, of course, in all of my career, um, and in particular uh, in DFID and UN. And I, I found them I found them really interesting, but again, I thought that there was a that there was a gap that we could fill that could be filled in China for real understanding of international development. And many consultants didn't have that understanding or consultancies didn't have that uh, understanding. I also felt that there was a kind of consultancy 2.0 model um, in a way, which is, you know, one really lean and flexible uh, to be able to and adaptable to different, different um, clients and needs, uh, again, because international development is so broad. Uh, and also, uh, 2.0 in the sense of uh, integrating this idea of not only just working directly for clients, but also integrating global public goods and whatever we do. So having being a mission-driven consultancy from the beginning, um, mm. which I think you know, there's lots of consultancies who are out there who have you know who have started to who have built you know, a separate institute or they have this like public good part or the pro bono part, etc. <laughs> Actually, yeah. our, what I wanted to build was something which is, uh, which has sustainability right from the start. And so, so I had this idea um, and, and thought, look, this is a, this is a great time. I'm kind of mid career. Um, I've also, you know, there's a clear gap here that I feel that that can be delivered and, why not? Why not try at least um, and see see how it works? Um, and yeah, here we are. Yeah, and from from my understanding in, in some of my research, you really focus on Chinese companies investing in Africa, and then you're also advising African companies that are entering the Chinese market. Would you say that, just from a functional perspective, that's the type of clients that you work with through the consultancy um we also work as well as chinese companies and and african businesses we also work with um international organizations and also governments too 
Um, so international organizations or also kind of goes into international non-governmental organizations too, but that's typically providing research or facilitating okay. um, uh, kind of events, dialogue, etc. Um, and then governments, we uh, do things like feasibility studies or uh, also actually delivering particular services um, for, mm. for them or briefings, this type of thing. And then, yes, the, the direct advice for, for Chinese companies investing in Africa and then, and then the African businesses looking to enter China in particular. That's our, our flagship okay. project, project that we started last year. So from the business, the business side of what you do in the consultancy, I'd be curious to learn, you know, are there some guiding principles that, that you can share with listeners about um, investment either way? And you also mentioned... Um, and I hadn't picked this up when I was doing some initial research about um, how you invest sustainably. And, you know, are there are there sustainable models that you think about um, or have developed or I, I think investing sustainably from the start is something that's very difficult to do. And I think it's a really commendable cause to to continue to push forward and champion so i'd love to learn more about that as well so i should say uh first of all with uh the chinese companies that we work with um typically they are uh not state-owned enterprises because they are a completely different uh beast and uh much more focused on infrastructure projects uh large-scale infrastructure projects what we tend to focus on the clients that we have are more private sector chinese companies who might for instance, be interested in manufacturing um, or investing in uh, in other other aspects um, of uh, of African countries. Um, for example, we have a client right now who's mm-hmm. interested in investing in the environment sector uh, in one of in one of the African countries. So, um, and the way that we typically start off the work with them is, and and our guiding principle is really about getting as much. Mm-hmm local information to them as possible you know we tend to find that uh, a lot of Chinese companies they may have an interest in Africa but they very much they really have a very low starting point in terms of understanding the differences across the 54 African countries that uh, that exist um, 55 actually but um, and so with that as a result uh, they are quite they often have certain stereotypical views of what might be available, what isn't available, and also the different standards that might apply to them. Uh, on the other hand, we also find that a lot of uh, African countries uh, and others do not necessarily have particular, for example, particularly strong environmental standards uh, in place. Um, so what we will always do is make sure that with the information that we will be giving these Chinese companies about the about the uh, business environment, we will also make sure that they have kind of a different set of options for investment. So, for example, we're doing a feasibility study. We'll give we'll set to say to them, well, you can you know install this kind of power plant, but you could also do a really fully upgraded you know renewable power plant, etc. Because uh, and you should do that. Ideally, because a lot of the African countries, even if they don't have the standards, they still have aspirations. So what they're focusing on is, you know, in 2025 or 20, 
2030, we want to be 100% renewable, or we want to be, you know, we want to be going, growing green. So it's important, and again, for reputation in particular as well, for Chinese companies, if you want to be in this country for a long term, if you want to have a good reputation, then it's really important that you kind of set your standards for yourselves as high as possible. And the same thing going with you know, issues around labor relations um, and how and how uh, Chinese companies work with the local labor. Uh, often they're not, they don't know, uh, they don't know those rules and they're also not necessarily familiar with this, the rules of, you know, for example, trade unions uh, just have a completely different role in China uh, to, to what kind of role they have uh, in African countries. So getting them used to those sorts of and providing that kind of information about that is always part of the journey as well. This is a bit broad, but I have wanted to see where you take it. Is there anything that you find that's often overlooked in the Africa-China relationship? And you know, based on what that is, how do you educate and guide your clients on both both sides, so to speak? So I think there is there are a lot of issues that are overlooked within the Africa-China relationship. I think two in particular are really key and, and what we, in a sense, as a consultancy, really bring to the table. Mm. So one is, it, one is a focus on agency and in particular of African agency. Uh, in that relationship, so um, what we've what we typically see is that there is a real potential um, for African governments uh, or African stakeholders to exert agency with regards to the Chinese relationship. But there are re- there are barriers to doing that, and in some ways, the activities that they've been the way that they've been engaging with China is just not is actually just not exerting that agency at all. The kinds of barriers I'm talking about are things like just a lack of information or not speaking to each other about what's happening and exchanging experience about, in a sense, I guess one could call it institutional memory, but cross-country institutional memory, because there is a possibility for, and I think this is coming together more as a vision of African countries, you know, getting together and having their, just take the example of the African um, continental free trade area, they are trying to build up trade across the continent and not and not just act uh, unilaterally. That is something which is just not being taken into account by other development partners strongly enough, um, but could really help, um, help these countries to uh, push for the right direction, uh, uh, whether it's trade or foreign direct investment. They can push for more from those relationships. So I think that's one of the areas that is overlooked and and kind of not yet built on enough. There's not enough capacity in that area. The other part of the Africa-China relationship that I think is, again, overlooked is the detail of China's experience. Um, And I say that because, you know, for, for a lot of African countries, China is a really, really interesting development partner and really interesting because it, it has this kind of, and I'm, I, I'll go back to even when I arrived in, when I first went to China back in 2000, okay. that was when 2010 was for, um, for climate change negotiation, which was actually a really excellent okay. negotiation um, back in October 2010. Um, you come to China and, and as an African, actually, uh, you, look at, you look at what China has achieved and you're like, wow, okay. So in this space, in this short mm. space of time, they have managed to get here. 
But how? It's always, and we see this with our with African people that go to China all the time. That that's that's their mindset. Like this is amazing. This is really amazing. They were at our level of poverty, and this is what they've come to, and this is fantastic. We want it, and this is why we want to be partnering with China. And then you say, but hold on, you need to understand how this happened. You need to really get into the detail, you know. And one of my、uh, two of our team members who've just written a piece, for instance, I'll just give you a good example of this on、um, traditional Chinese medicine. Now, traditional Chinese medicine and how that could apply is that traditional Chinese medicine doesn't just become kind of popular in China or popular in other countries overnight. It becomes popular because Chinese government has really invested in it in a whole different set of ways, and made and put, set out regulations around it.、Uh, you know, invested in universities and courses. Even in I think in South Africa, my team kind of had this amazing statistic that you've got five South African, five out of the eight South African universities that teach medicine have got TCM courses. Right,、mm. that's quite amazing, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> some these random things that we find out,、um, but but they're important because、yeah. if if for example, you know, we're talking about at this time we're talking about COVID nineteen and COVID nineteen in Africa. Again, my team's been working on that a lot,、um, and Madagascar, for example, has been saying, look, you know, we've got this treatment for COVID nineteen. We would love other countries to use it. We've, they're giving it away across、um, across Africa, thirteen countries so far.、Mm. And the rest of the rest of the world, including WHO, are saying, "But hold on, you've got to test this. You've got to. This is. You might be a traditional medicine, but you've got to kind of set up, set up a lot around it. And that's also what China's done. But again, it's done it in a very short space of time. So understanding that,、um, but something quite unique, is really is really important and useful for African governments to do. So I think、um, it's. People talk about you know Africa looking at China as a kind of development model. It's it's not that simple, and it's much more granular.、Mm-hmm. It's granular in the sense of it's not just about the politics, and people often just kind of confine it to confine it to the politics. So it's about democracy, or it's about lack of democracy.、Um, no, what it what's most interesting is about the different aspects of shifting a society. From a society which is you know, very poor, majority poor, into one that you know functions in the way that you know a, a British or or American、uh, society might function for you know upper and middle classes. How do you do that、um, and do that in a very short space of time? And that's what African countries want to get to. But you can't, you can't, you can't understand that in a in a, in through broad generalizations. You have to get down. By sector, by issue,、um, and again, so that's part. I think those two, those two aspects, the agency and also the the understanding, are the the parts of of the Africa-China relationship that we're hoping we can fill a gap in. Yeah, and that granularity of looking to elements of the China model is that kind of what you're getting at when you say, you know. The consultancy has a mission to end poverty, particularly in Africa. I, in some ways, yes, right. So we we are mission driven. So every every bit of advice that we give is going to have some sustainability aspect of it, and、mm-hmm. is and is kind of geared towards that aim. Even the African businesses that we work with, who want to enter China, we're not we 
we don't just work with any African business. We look out, we look for African clients who we think uh, are doing really cutting edge, sustainable, or are looking, you know, our brands, for example, that have a value chain that's going right down to poor farmers in, a, you know, several villages in Tanzania. That type of activity. We've worked with one company who have just op- who opened last year the first women's only mine in Zimbabwe, right? So we're wow. trying constantly trying to be at the cutting edge. But I think by being in China and and also by having a diverse team too, but particularly by being in China, it gives us that kind of way of opening up our thinking to how you how you can drive poverty alleviation, that it's not just through uh, through cash transfers, of course, which are very, very important, but there's also a huge amount of other tools that are at our disposal to be able to um, to be able to help in that mission. So I think you know that kind of that helps us fit in a sense. You know, we're not an advocacy organization, we're not an NGO. That's not our point. What our point is is to make sure that advice that is given and the support that's given is always going to have that mission behind it. Yeah, I really respect that. Um, you you know, you also brought up COVID-19. Of course, everyone's talking about that. But um, one of the first things that comes up when uh, someone searches your name now is your piece in The Diplomat on China and the COVID-19 debt crunch. And, you know, without giving away the whole article, it would be really great if we could talk a bit about how China is filling the debt gap and why it's important to shed light on the dynamics of how China relieves the debt woes of what you call poor country governments. Um, I think this is super topical. Uh, Also, congratulations on that first piece in The Diplomat um, and would love to, you know, get, get listeners to read the whole article. But if you could tell us a bit more about about what you're writing about. Yeah, sure. And it was it was wonderful um, of the diplomat to, you know, kind of reach out and say, can you write this feature piece for our for our e-magazine? Yeah. Um, and what they wanted was a kind of to be able to help readers understand from from a government, you know, whether it's African or, or Asian, relatively poorer in some ways, uh, government why go to China? Why has China been interesting, as well as the challenges with China, right? Um, and I think what mm-hmm. I what I wanted, I think I really wanted to, in that article, bring out what that recipient perspective is. And I think this is typically, again, you know, because we work so closely with uh, African governments and try to and kind of and hear what kind of things they're they're grappling with and also and, and as well as businesses and what's really affecting them on the ground mm. you know there is a there's a the kinds of frustrations and and I even I did hear these also expressed even when I was working in 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 the UN and, and prior to that in DFID of just you know we need certain types of international support and we don't find those easily you know either there are huge delays or the concessionality or sorry the financing is just is is far too expensive or there or there's a particular priority being put towards those finance those finances so you know from bilateral donors you you won't get infrastructure finance from the UK you won't you'll only 
the UK channels its finance for infrastructure through the World Bank. So you have to go to the World Bank and then you know you might face five, seven years of delay in terms of getting that finance. I mean, and often for good reason, you know, environmental safeguards, social safeguards, et cetera, et cetera, all of those things. Mm. Um, but again, big bureaucracies typically take a long time. And China's got a self-interest of getting projects out there and also of delivering infrastructure around the world. And it sees that self-interest. So it becomes more like a partner in that in that discussion, not kind of, and, and is more willing, I guess, uh, to to do these things. So I think that was what I was trying to bring out in that article, the kinds of problems that the Chinese finance is solving and why, and therefore why China has become a bigger uh, player in, in financing for development, uh, although not the only one. And I think in my article, I also tried to make the point of the fact that, you know, private creditors are also extremely important and multilateral creditors are still very important. And, you know, again, just kind of make sure people have those numbers in their minds, not to kind of overblow what China is and isn't. But I guess the key point was, you know, to, to have that recipient recipient perspective and and what I then moved into and I think those who read the article will will get a good understanding of this is even with China there are still huge challenges um, that recipient countries face and there's a lot of finance that they still can't get from China for instance I'll give you a good example Kenya got a standard gauge a new railway which has been built by uh, which has been Chinese built Chinese financed uh, and is Chinese operated now. But at the the initial conception of that railway was that it would be going toward going through Uganda and to Rwanda. Um, and then there was also a plan to have a Tanzania Rwanda Rwanda railway separately and so on. But the idea was that China would finance most of that, right? And that was the possibility that these governments thought would happen. Now the reality is that they for various reasons China, the Chinese Exim Bank said, look, we're not going to finance all of these things all at once. You know, we need to do this in stages. But that staging itself has not necessarily been in the interests of uh, the countries that wanted those railways. So these countries are having to wait, for example, for the China, for the Kenyan side to be done, then the Uganda and then the Rwanda. Well, these countries need those railways yesterday. And actually, they did need them for COVID, for instance. You know, there have been a huge number of cases and delays at different borders, which including across the Kenya-Uganda border uh, for truck drivers, because that's the only way the cargo goes through. There is no train that could go through, yet it could be so useful. And that project itself could be delivering much more um, return if it was going across to Rwanda than if it's just within Kenya. So these are these are some real, mm-hmm. even, even from China, who was like, you know, everybody thinks is the most willing people seem to think is the most willing uh, creditor out there there are there are constraints on that credit and of course and recipients even want more so uh, I tried to try to bring that out and 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 suggested in the end that what we need is is to be actually rethinking the challenges that we've seen with the international debt system. China has been solving some of those problems, but it hasn't quite solved everything. You know, there's still masses of issues of coordination. And so I took it to, I eventually went to look at how have we solved these issues at an individual level, and especially for very poor people. We've had microfinance, which has been really helpful. So I tried to bring out how do we apply those sorts of lessons to the international level 
Uh, so I'll leave it at that <laughs> because I do want people to read the article. Um, <laughs> um, but I think that I think that example is really illustrative and and yeah, helpful. I think you know the fact is China China is helpful as an international player, but there's still things that it doesn't solve. So we have to still be thinking how do we together collectively? There's still a lot of the multilateral system that we need to reform, that we need to move on, and having China there solves something for sure, but it doesn't solve everything. So so that, I think that's. I think there's a there's a lot more to be done by all of us in the development sector on this, really. So I think we've uncovered a lot about your career, and thank you. F- I think you've been really great in, in giving really helpful examples and understanding your perspective. Um, I'd also love to talk a bit more about the intersection with your personal life. Um, from what I know, you live in Beijing now. Uh, you're also a mother and a professional. And you've hinted at it a few times in our conversation, you know, just, you know, is there any advice or anything that you've learned? Have there been specific examples or experiences over the course of your career where, you know, there, there was that, that balance, that push and pull? I really hate to use the word balance, but uh, sometimes it's the only fitting word to use. Um, but yeah, I would just like to, to talk a bit about that intersection. Balance is definitely um, fairly pretty hard to achieve, <laughs> and <Yeah>. especially now <laughs> with COVID nineteen working from home uh, constantly. Um, oh yeah, it, it gets even harder. But in a way, I have to admit, being being a mother, being a parent, has been actually really enriching for me, as opposed to almost being a, being a barrier from my own from my own sense, my own personal. Um, feeling about what I do and where I take where I take my career. What it has taught me is one courage. You know, uh, I kind of I alluded to this earlier, but I think there are a few things that I did as a mother, including um, setting up a nursery rhymes um, song time called Safari Time, which which mm. did really well and and was really fun, but also kind of gave me gave me a sense of look if if you see that there's a gap and if you see that people need something you can do it and you can you can help make a change and you can help make a difference and and the power of individuals in a sense um i hadn't quite had that feeling until until i became a until i became a mum uh and then what i've also learned is patience <laughs> and a day-to-day patience mm-hmm. i think uh my sister actually once said to me you know, you're growing a business, look at it as growing a baby. <laughs> you know, you've got, it's, it's not, it's definitely, I have the worst days and the best days. I did that too. When I was in government, I did that too. When I was in, when I was in the UN, but it is a totally different beast. And although, you know, one of, one of the great things about being in the private sector is that flexibility, that adaptability, and that you know, when you get a project that you're so excited to work on because you know it's going to make a real difference and it will make the difference really quickly, that's great. And you hardly get those opportunities uh, outside. At the same time, those things have will slowly come and you'll be met by, you know, lots of people will say, you know, oh, we're really interested in this. And then, it, you know, the project doesn't actually happen. Or, you know, sometimes you've just got to be out there. Um and, and the business development is, is constant, but patience is everything. Consistency is everything. And that's 
you know, being a parent, you learn those skills so quickly, you know, you are, you are kind of thrown straight into it. So I think that's been, that's been very, very helpful. And, um, and of course, also having a supportive husband is very, very helpful. <laughs> so, you know, being a team uh, is everything. So, and finding the right team too in in my consultancy has been amazing. So, yeah, those are, I guess, those are the learning points. Uh, I'm sure over the next few years, I will have many more. And as we work with different organizations and different clients too, but it is all an amazing learning curve. Really interesting. I, I think in that line. One thing I do always like to ask all guests of the show is I I like to know about advice that sticks with people. And I think one metric that I've used to to find that type of advice is what's something that someone's told you or advice that someone's given you in the past that you've actually found yourself giving to someone else recently. Here's one. So I I use this today, actually, um, with my son. Um, we're helping him learn how to uh, <laughs> to ride a bike, uh, and it was it was smile, smile as you're doing things. It will make it easy. It was advice from my dad, and I and I know it sounds kind of trite, but <laughs> if if you can't, if you're going through the hardest of times, and you're like having to push yourself really hard, and I think lots of development people in development, you know, are so mission driven and really want to make a difference but they always will get to points in which they're finding it really difficult. And, you know, and I think even particularly at these times, but smile while you're doing it um, was something which I felt at every stage of, of your career is going to be really helpful. Um, Even when you're doing an interview (laughs) or a podcast. Um, (laughs) When you can't see the other person, even, even though you can't, um, that's always it it just brings you in a different state of mind um, to be able to move to the next challenge. And I think um, that's something which I, I constantly hear myself saying and use um, to, to keep on going and keep on trying to, trying to make that difference. Yeah, I will definitely be thinking of that this week, especially you know, amid the times that we're in right now. It's a little bit less so I, from what I understand in Beijing, just continuing to push forward and... Um, Yeah, Hannah, this has been really insightful, really thoughtful. Um, I also feel like I got a much stronger understanding of kind of your path to where you're at and all the layers that have now been built into this consultancy that you've built from the ground up. So I think that's been incredibly helpful and useful for me, and I hope it is for listeners as well. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. and yeah, I, I hope it's interesting for your listeners and uh, and I hope listeners, you reach out to us too. Want more Ta for Ta? Hit subscribe to get updates on our episodes. You can also interact with us on Twitter at Ta for Ta. And we love messages over email at ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Ta for Ta, Women's Success China is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks again to Kaiser Kuo for co-producing and Jason Ronalds for editing. And until next time, I'm Juliana Batista and this is Ta for Ta.